And I was like, this is so wrong. I had this anger that started to develop in me. And when I saw all of those people who were angry like me at the demonstrations that would ensue, um, and, I, and I had an intense realization that this could have been my father. But where are the common spaces that are coming with that? Where is the diversity of people who can actually afford to exist? But I realized that I was in a way an actor in an elaborate kind of systemic performance. And on that same Selby Street, my dad was arrested by the police. Charge the cops with murder. Charge the cops with murder. Because at that time, you know, we would be beaten up, arrested, all kinds of things on a routine basis. As long as there are people, we can still do collective action. I'm Ken Moffat, and this is Downstream from what? Later on, our family moved from Selby to Jarvis. We moved into, um, yeah, 342 Jarvis Street, which I later was to discover was the headquarters for LOOT, L-O-O-T, which stood for the Lesbian Organization of Toronto. <laughs> which um, its claim to fame was that it opened the first lesbian centre in Canada in that old Victorian house, um, which is still standing, actually. So uh, the reason I found out about that is because when we, our family moved there, um, my dad was uh, walking up the front door. He went on into the house, closed the door, and, but he sensed that some people were gathering and a large group of women gathered on the front porch. And they started tying balloons onto um, the front porch. And then they started chanting. And they were chanting, 342, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> and he couldn't figure this out. He was like, what is this all about? And then we did a little bit of investigating and we found out that these women had gathered on the anniversary of their departure from that iconic location, 342 Jarvis, just to remember all of the things that they had accomplished while in that, in that house. They ended up sharing the house with, like I think, some other feminist um, news magazine that was being published out of there called The Other Woman. <laughs> but Loot was founded in the mid-70s, and it was made up of people with varying political views, but who decided that it was really significant to have a physical space where women could meet. Loot, I understand, grew out of um, CHAT, which was the, um, uh, I think it was called the Homophile Association Community. Yes, I'm not sure the C. I think it was community, yeah. but community homophile association of, of Toronto. Toronto. Yeah. yeah. So, as with many organizations at the time, right, um, groups with men and women, there were like tensions there, and so uh, 
a bunch of lesbians decided, you know what, we need to have our own space. And so Loot um, found 342, moved in, and, oh, there was a coffee house also run by some women out of that same space. And they did a lot. They did a lot. They had a newsletter. They developed a peer support group. They had political activities, they ran dances, they had brunches, they had talks, they had music, they had uh, lesbian musicians performing there. And what's really cool is actually on, there's a resource called riseupfeministarchive.ca um, where you can actually read some of their original pamphlets that they came up with as to like their, their history, why they came about, what, what they were all about. And out of loot, um, there were political tensions as well. And certainly they were what, I, I think they were not always welcoming of some other developments or some other people in queer community. Like I don't think they, I think I heard a story that there was a trans woman who tried to join and they were like, absolutely not. You're not coming in here, you know, um, so they weren't exactly open to um, all different elements of uh, our queer family. But out of that organization came other groups like um, Lesbians Against the Right, um, uh, the Lesbian Mothers Defense Fund, because we're talking about a time, right, where if it was found out that you were getting a divorce from your husband because you were in fact a lesbian, you could have your children taken away from you, right? The law was not on your side. So organizations like that um, came out of those meetings um, from the women of loot and also um, women who were active in International Women's Day, right, were very much involved with loot as well. So I like to joke with people that I grew up in a, a lesbian household, <laughs> even though they'd already gone by that time. But, <laughs> but um, yeah. Um, so rich, so heartening what you're talking about. Um, uh, and I just wondered if you could talk why you became a lawyer. What, what was it out of this history that prompted you to be a lawyer? Yeah, I can say definitively that the reason I became a lawyer was because the police killed Albert, Albert Johnson that day. Um, and I was so touched by that it was the, I actually went on later, um, my parents took me to the funeral home where, you know, his body was laid out for everyone in a visitation. And I remember that was the first time that I'd ever seen a dead person. And I was like, this is so wrong. I had this anger that started to develop in me. And when I saw all of those people who were angry like me at the demonstrations that would ensue, um, and, I, and I had an intense realization that this could have been my father, you know? Because my dad was a lawyer, so he, you know, we lived a middle-class existence, but he was still a black man, 
And on that same Selby Street, my dad was arrested by the police. Just one day, um, the police stopped him and asked him, started asking him a bunch of questions and, you know, he didn't answer. Because he was like, I don't have to answer you. you know, this, it was harassment, right? And, um, and our neighbor just happened to be out on the front porch and was looking at this whole scene and called my mom and said, Hetty, your husband's getting arrested right now. My mom just managed to see them wrenching my dad's arm behind his back, breaking his watch and throwing him into the back of a cruiser. They didn't realize that they were arresting a civil rights lawyer at the oh time. <laughs> and they didn't realize that it would um, be, what would ensue was several years of being sued, <laughs> um, which, you know, he ended up suing them and, you know, winning a, a modest um, settlement that they actually appealed and then he won the appeal as well. But, um, you know, that it could have been my father who had been killed. Right? And so I was like, what, what do people do when they just want to fight for justice? Right? And I thought my conception of it at the time was, oh, okay, you become a lawyer, right? and you fight for the people who've been left behind, who've been wronged, and you try to you know, hold somebody accountable. Right? And, and at the time, our thinking was, and the chants in the street were, charge the cops with murder charge the cops with murder because at that time you know we would be beaten up arrested all kinds of things on a routine basis and th there were no consequences there were no consequences one of the remarkable things about albert johnson's killing was that the tr there was so much heat there was so much political pressure at the time that the two officers were actually charged they were acquitted but they were actually charged um and so I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to become a lawyer and I'm going to go after and get some sort of accountability because I don't want anybody to be in this kind of situation again, right? And then I realized that, oh no, the, the killings are continuing or, you know, these things, because the 80s became a time where the killings actually intensified. For a while they stopped. And I think it was due to that political pressure. But in the late 80s, as I was uh, in my last years of, of high school, um, you know, we had um, people like Tommy Barnett was killed on, on um, Bathurst Street near St. Clair. Within 21 seconds, you know, he was walking in the middle of the street. He shouldn't have been in the middle of the street maybe, but within 21 seconds he was killed. Right? We had other people like Michael Wade Lawson shot in the back of the head with an illegal hollow point bullet. Right? And these are the kinds of Raymond Lawrence killed right around the same time as everything was blowing up in the States around um, the Rodney um, King incident. You know? um, so I was like, what can I do? I'm going to sue these officers. I'm going to sue the city. I'm going to just because I knew that they understood money. So my naive young brain was like, I'm gonna sue them so much and it's gonna cost them so much that they're gonna have to stop, right? What I didn't realize is, oh, there's insurance for that, <laughs> right? It's us paying those settlements, right? It's taxpayers. Mm -hmm. 
So this is why I'm, you know, but I continued on in that work for many years. I was doing inquests, right, inquests, uh, coroner's inquests, where we're supposed to look into these kill killings and figure out what went wrong, what are the systemic flaws, and we're supposed to correct them, right? And I, I continued representing families and suing and getting settlements and everything kept, you know, the system kept working as designed. And then I came to realize that, oh wow, I'm part of this system that's not changing anything, right? So one of the things that I'm heartened, and this is why I call myself a recovering lawyer, because I was like, okay, I'm actually not achieving justice here. I'm achieving a modicum of accountability or some sort of repair for families, which is not really a repair, right? Giving people checks and money is not, no family will ever tell you that they'll take a check over their, over their loved one, right? Um, but I realized that I was in a way an actor in an elaborate kind of systemic performance. And I decided I have to step away from this. It was actually Winnie Ng, who we first met, who was the, the who preceded me in this role of Unifor Chair um, in Social Justice and Democracy. Winnie Ng was a labor activist and a and an anti-racism activist. And we, our family first came to know her because my dad was uh, representing a Chinese man named Wei Fu who was being discriminated on the job back in the early 80s. And Winnie was part of the, the group that was organizing a support committee around this man. So that's where I first met Winnie. Winnie realized my frustrations with the law and said, you know what, I'm leaving this position. Why don't you think about teaching at the university? So I thought, oh, here's my escape. <laughs> I can go to the university and get away from this policing thing, only to realize when I got to the university that the police were following us <laughs> onto campus because there was a whole move by the administration to start bringing special constables onto the campus in the notion that this would make the university safer. Right? There was a lot of hubbub around the safe injection site at the foot of Victoria Street near Dundas. A lot of people said, this shouldn't be here. There was a lot of fear-mongering around alleged, what I think was imagined criminality happening at, at that corner. I don't, I don't think it was really happening, but that's, this is the perception, right? And people were like, oh, we need, we need special constables to come onto the campus. This will make us safer or whatever. So we had to mount a whole campaign. No cops on campus, you know? So I didn't get a break. <laughs> but, but it was a different kind of work and it was somewhat heartening to see the students having a much more sophisticated understanding of what it is to have a carceral police sort of mentality that starts to seep into everything, including even social work, right? Including even the way we conceive of a learning community and what it means to be on a downtown campus, right? At, at the university is when I really started thinking more deeply about how our city is changing, how moneyed interests are just kind of capturing um, common space.
and how even at a public institution, we start to, you know, that's right in the smack dab center of Toronto, how we start to think of public space as not quite public. How we start to think of who belongs on, you know, in any one of our buildings. And where we have to start to combat things like, you know, the university community supposedly being issued special passes to get into buildings that were once accessible, where somebody might need to actually, excuse me, go to the washroom or actually safely inject and, and, and have a sharp spot to, you know, drop something into, right? We're walling off all of those spaces. So now I think about how much Selby Street, where I grew, grew up, has changed, right? Now, where the Selby Hotel, where those men were partying, um, you know, in the, in the 80s, is now Maison Selby, which houses an upscale French bistro, right? That any, any one of those men who used to hung, hang out on the concrete bench would never be able to sit there and have a meal. Right? I think about how the, fa the fact is that right beside Maison Selby is now a massive condo, like so many stories high. How even 100 Huntley Street, where the, the little Christian <laughs> televangelists were broadcasting their thing, is now the headquarters of Rogers Communications, the telephone um, and radio broadcasting conglomerate, right? They ripped down the everything and built this massive headquarters there. You know, I, I think about how the the old police headquarters is a condo. You know, and and condos, condos everywhere popping up all over the place, right? And I wonder about, you know, right now on Dupont near Ossington, they're going to build this massive, I think, more than a thousand unit condo construction, right? And I, I just was like, let me go on their website and look at what they're creating here, you know? And I realized what they're creating there is not going to lend itself to a vibrant streetscape. Because you'll go into that complex and the people who can afford to live there will have their own gym, will have their own outdoor terraces with their own fancy barbecue spaces and their own mini lounges to recreate in and to socialize in. And who will they meet? They will meet people of their same socioeconomic background. And will we have a new park to accompany these spaces? Will we have a new community center to accompany these spaces? Will we have another public library? None of these things are being discussed. So yes, we need densification. People need we need to build up. I'm not opposed to that at all. But where are the common spaces that are coming with that? Where is the diversity of people who can actually afford to exist on the streets? You're making me uh, think of the university campus. So you think of Gold Street yep. that ended up becoming which seemed like a good idea at the time, a pedestrian zone, but yeah. then that allowed it to become a highly regulated zone. I remember a moment I really lamented at the university is when they started locking the doors in the evening 
even while evening classes were on. And I'm like, this is public money. And look at the special treatment of those, of whoever, as if, and as if the students aren't using the harm reduction site, for example, or faculty or staff. Um, and then I'm also thinking the vitality of Church Street. When I first started working there, how I'd walk up past sex workers yeah. and people hanging out on the street, possibly smoking a joint, you yeah. know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and now there's condos in those same few blocks going up from Gould to Carlton, and yeah. it is a dead zone at it night. Is. Dead zone. It feels yeah. way less safe to me now than it did then uh, when it had a vitality. Exactly. And a mixture yeah. of people. Yeah. I was thinking about moving forward out mm -hmm. of all this. If mm -hmm. we move forward out of history. Yeah. And I'm kind of, well, not kind of, I'm happy we're here in the west end of Toronto in a mm -hmm. garage of Ben McCarthy. And you can hear cars going by and planes going overhead. We're in the middle of COVID. We need to be outside. And I'm hoping in a way we're still creating a history, a local history by mm -hmm. doing this sort of thing. Yeah. And so my question to you is like moving forward, how do you imagine? What do we do when it seems so locked in? Wow. Yeah. You're, you're just leaving me with a, an easy question, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think part of what you're doing is important, right? I mean, we have to preserve some of this history, but it is really challenging, though, because I think that what we're experiencing now in this city is a capture of the city by developers. I don't see developers creating communities. I see them creating structures that uh, a select number of people can afford to live in and others will use as, quite frankly, just another investment vehicle. I think a lot of um, people are, are purchasing condos as an investment vehicle, not even to live in themselves, right? So if you don't have, uh, if you're not going to live there, um, are you going to create a community around you? Are you? Where are the... Like, I think of, you know, when I was a kid, there used to be something called coffee shops, right? And one of them was in 342, right? And it was a place where you could go as maybe a, a, a new terrible poet and just meet other terrible poets, right? <laughs> and think about things, right? But it was a space where you could think about things... And you could, you know, maybe come up with a newsletter, maybe, you know, start a dance, do the... I don't know what is going on now. Because not to, not to be um, anti-technology. Technology has also created, opened many new worlds for us, right? I mean, people can meet each other and talk with each other from across the world now. And we can meet each other that we wouldn't normally meet, right? in ways that, you know, are magical sometimes, right? But what about that the happenstance kind of sort of stumbling upon something? What about just the vibrancy of a streetscape that lets you know that actually the world is made up of different kinds of people, 
They don't all look like me. They don't all think like me. They don't all dress like me. They don't all express themselves like me. They don't all identify or use the same, you know, um, normative gendered pronouns or whatever it is, you know? Now, what, what do we see as, as the life of the street? We have pride, which itself was such a claiming of public space that has now been captured by moneyed interests, right? Brought to you by Spurnoff and Absolute Vodka or whoever, Trojan, blah, 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 right? And, and we have um, Carabana that was at one point captured by Scotiabank because the government didn't see fit to actually try to fund all of those small people making those elaborate, beautiful masquerade um, costumes, right? It takes money to do that, right? No support from government. So Scotiabank had to step in and, and claim that space. And now we see the, the kinds of festivals that are created are, they're done in some bureaucrat's office with some, you know, bank behind it or a credit card company behind it or something like that. And it, it, to me, there's a kind of a soul that's been stripped away Right? But I see some hope in the fact that during this pandemic period, a lot of people um, have been questioning things. They've been questioning how our society works. And they have actually still come out into the streets. I mean, one of the things that I was, I was taking every precaution, living like a hermit, all of that kind of stuff. One of the things that pushed me back to Christie Pitts was the, the uh, tragic death of Regis Korczynski Paquette, who tumbled to her death from a balcony after being what some people said was chased by and harassed by the police. That brought out, again, a new generation of people to Christie Pitts in a mass demonstration, right? But this time they weren't saying charge the cops with murder. They weren't, you know, saying, oh, we need more black police officers or something. Some of the sort of notions that we thought would bring about change, they weren't arguing anything like that. They were saying, we need to move away from police. We need to take those resources that we've been putting into these structures of, you know, patriarchal violent structures and put them into care, right? And so I'm seeing amongst a number of young political actors a much deeper critique and a hunger and an actual attempts, right, of thinking about things like mutual aid, thinking about things of like, how do we set up communities of care that are not necessarily dependent on government funds, government resources. Yes, we need those, and they're still claiming that because government always has a systemic role to play, right? But they're also saying, okay, how do we, independent of all of that stuff, think about, think about things like growing food, Think about things like returning to um, support indigenous land defenders, right? Who are, who are saying, you know what? We're just going to reclaim our land. We're not going to accept this. You know what? We are going to 
open our own shop where we, we counsel each other through trauma. You know, we are going to, you know, start something that is wholly our own. You know, I, I think about th people like Alana Fricker, who used to work in your office, right? Who starts up the Toronto Prisoners' Rights Project, right? And just out of appealing to people, they raised like over $300,000 from people, right? To support those folks who were coming out of prisons, right? Because of the pandemic, they were releasing people. And I think people started to see, oh, wait a minute, we can actually release thousands of people from these places where somebody said they had to be housed. And there isn't a break, there isn't mass pandemonium breaking out, but in fact, we can get together and actually support these folks coming out, even if it's in small ways, right? So those are the kinds of discussions that I see happening, not enough, but I start to, you know, I, I'm starting to see people talking about a deeper critique of what is and talking about what is possible. What can we do? Um, and I think we need a lot more of that. As long as there are people, we can still do collective action. We have achieved an enormous amount, and I think... Part of the problem is that story is often buried, right? But people came out of being stigmatized, vilified, beaten up, jailed, all kinds of things like that, you know, de making demands on society and saying, we're not going to accept this, I'm sorry, we're going to create something different. This is the end of the first season. Now that you have a taste for Downstream From What, look for a new suite of episodes next year. Follow me on Instagram, linked in the show notes, for updates on interviewees and episodes. Downstream From What is a co-creation of myself, Ken Moffat, and Ben McCarthy. Art is by Autumn Fazari. Score is by Ben McCarthy funded by the Dean, Faculty of Community Services, the Dean, Faculty of Arts, and the Office of the President at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>